0: I want to begin this afternoon by asking you to think back with me a number of months ago to the middle of December, in the thick of preparation for and anticipation of Christmas. The retail stores had their Christmas displays up full of Christmas lights and wreaths and ornaments, The department stores were advertising their Christmas sales in full fury. The radio stations had put the Christmas music on loop, and we were all finishing up our Christmas shopping, remembering that Christmas is the season of giving. And though the world does its best to make that giving about consumerism and selfishness, As Christians, we celebrate Christmas as the season of giving because we know that Christmas is when we celebrate God giving man the greatest gift ever given, the incarnation of God the Son. In the God-man, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, fallen humanity is given a perfectly sufficient, perfectly suitable Savior from sin and from judgment. Fully man, and therefore able to stand in man's place, both to bear man's punishment and accomplish man's righteousness. And yet, fully God, and therefore able to bear the wrath of God without perishing eternally. Able to bestow his infinite merit upon the innumerable sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. Christmas is the time of year when we celebrate the incarnation of God the Son, the eternal Word, become flesh and dwelling among us. But the sad thing about that is, we can tend to restrict our reflection and meditation upon the incarnation of Christ to the month of December. After Christmas Day, our, our minds quickly turn to an anticipation of the new year. And then to all the things that we need to get done at work or at home once the holidays are over. And before you know it, it's the middle of January, and the incarnation of Christ is out of sight and out of mind. You blink your eyes again, and it's the first week of March, and it's unthinkable to be talking about Christmas. And that is a shame because the incarnation is worth more than merely seasonal contemplation. It's worthy of our constant attention, our constant study, our constant adoration. Think of it. The eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, infinite, almighty God takes on the nature of finite, temporal, dependent, mortal humanity without shedding his divine nature. The unchangeable God becomes what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was. The Irish reformer James Usher said of the incarnation that it is the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. Pastor and author Mark Jones said, The incarnation is God's greatest wonder, one that no creature could have ever imagined. God himself could not perform a more difficult and glorious work. It has justly been called the miracle of all miracles. And if we slow our minds down long enough to reflect on these truths, we are constrained to confess that there is a peculiar glory to this greatest of God's miracles. That among all the amazing works that Almighty God has accomplished in this world, the incarnation has a special luster of magnificence. And I think the reason for that peculiar glory is that the incarnation takes two things of infinite distance and difference and puts them side by side. The incarnation takes the infinite God and the finite man and unites them together in one magnificent person. And it's the juxtaposition of the majesty of God with the humility of man that renders the glory of the Lord Jesus, the glory of the incarnation, more especially brilliant than all other of God's works. And if that's true... The incarnation is the miracle of all miracles. If it's the most glorious of God's works, then it is a unique fount for our worship. And we as his people must devote our minds to the study of this truth. We must have doctrinal clarity on this truth in the service of inflaming our hearts with the worship that God rightly deserves. We must worship Christ for who he is and not for who we have imagined him to be. We must worship God for what he has done and not for what we have misinterpreted him to have done. See, our praise to Christ soars only as high as our understanding of his glorious person and work is rooted in the truth. The heights of our worship, brothers, will never exceed the depths of our theology. And therefore, the genuine worshiper of Christ must always be the student of Christ. And the worshiper of Christ is always a delighted student of Christ. Professor John Murray wrote of this subject, the Incarnation, it is high and heavenly doctrine." and for that reason of little appeal to dull minds and darkened hearts. It is the mystery that angels desire to look into, but it is also the delight of enlightened and humble souls. They love to explore the mysteries which bespeak the glories of their Redeemer. And they love to explore those mysteries not only in the Christmas season, but all year round. And so we're going to devote our time together this afternoon to magnifying the glory of God and the grace of Christ put on display in the incarnation. And to do that, we're going to give our minds to the study of a single verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, wherein the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, this Mount Everest of a verse comes in the larger context of Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in order to stir them up to give generously to a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. This was an offering the, the Corinthians had known about. Uh, they had begun making preparations a year prior to participate in the support of the Jerusalem church. But progress had been stalled by a conflict instigated by false teachers who had come and incited a mutiny in the church against the Apostle Paul. But now that that conflict had been resolved, Paul writes to urge the Corinthians to pick back up where they left off and to bring to completion the offering they had begun a year ago. And he begins this appeal first in the first five verses of chapter 8, by holding up the churches of Macedonia as an example of generosity to be imitated. So look with me at verses 1 to 5. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality." For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So the grace of God was so operative in the hearts of the Macedonians that their difficult circumstances, which Paul describes as severe affliction and deep poverty, could not stop them from overflowing with joy in Christ and begging Paul to allow them to meet the needs of the saints. And then in verse 7, he aims to stir them up by commending them for how the grace of God has worked in them. Verse 7, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you see that you abound in this gracious work also so he commends them for their spiritual giftedness for their maturity and he sees that as a foundation from which to exhort them to excel still more in the in the grace of generosity and then in verse 8 He exhorts them to prove the genuineness of their love by overflowing in practical actions of generosity. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. He says, I know you love the brethren in Jerusalem. Well, here's an opportunity for you to prove and express that love. And then Paul comes to the climax of his argument. Having appealed to the example of the Macedonians, having commended the Corinthians concerning the grace of God already at work in them, and then having exhorted them to prove their own love, Paul now appeals to the supreme and to the purest motivation for Christian generosity and for all moral and ethical instruction in the Christian life, namely the abounding grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator defines this grace as the utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God, active in and through Jesus Christ. And Paul defines that grace as that which is preeminently displayed in the gospel of Christ's incarnation, in his life of perfect obedience than in his substitutionary death for sin, which was the very purpose for his incarnation. He speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that is, namely, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Although in his preexistent glory, And deity, he was in possession of spiritual riches whose wealth words are unable to describe. He nevertheless voluntarily and sacrificially renounced those riches and embraced the poverty of life and death as a human being, precisely so that we who were destitute of God's favor and blessing could be enriched with the very righteousness of God himself. And so the context of this verse is chiefly concerned with the display of Christ's grace as a motivation for Christian generosity. But nevertheless, it is a fitting text to bring our minds to reflection on and contemplation of the incarnation of God the Son. And it breaks down nicely into three units of thought. First, we'll give our attention to Christ's riches. Second, we'll meditate on Christ's poverty. And third, we'll consider Christ's purpose. Christ's riches, Christ's poverty, and Christ's purpose. Well, in the first place, then, let us contemplate Christ's riches. Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. Literally, this phrase is translated, though being rich. Paul uses a present participle, which expresses ongoing, continuous action." And that's significant because when he comes to speak of Christ's poverty, he'll use an ingressive aorist and say, He became poor. You see, theology is often wrapped up in verb tenses. His poverty had a beginning, as we will see in his incarnation, but Christ had never become rich. From all eternity, he was being rich or existing as rich. Paul says something similar in Philippians 2.6, where he calls on the grace of the incarnation of Christ to stir the churches there to humility. And he says, and he speaks of Christ, Philippians 2.6, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was existing in the nature of God. And then John chapter 1 John 1.14, we learn that the Word became flesh. But in John 1.1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, the Word became flesh, but the Word never became God. From all eternity, before there was a beginning, the Word was existing as God in the richness and fullness of equality with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This Christ is the eternal Son, the one from whom all eternity was fully subsisting in the divine nature. He is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 the very radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. And so he is rich as the possessor of all the divine attributes and the possessor of all divine prerogatives. All of the fullness of Godhood dwells in him, no less than the Father, no less than in the Holy Spirit. He is the creator of all things. Colossians one sixteen. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is the sustainer of all creation. Colossians 1, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 3, again, he upholds all things by the word of his power. As its creator, Christ is therefore the owner of all creation, Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. In Job 41.11, the triune God says, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The Son is the eternal, eternally glorious one. Christ speaks in John 17, 5, of the glory which he had with the Father before the worlds began. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 calls him the Lord of glory. And Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a glimpse of what it meant for the Son to exist in the richness of heavenly glory as John 12, 41 tells us that it is he, the son, who is the exalted Lord that Isaiah saw seated on the throne of heaven. He he said these things because he saw him and spoke of him. It is the train of the son's robe that fills the heavenly temple. It is to the glory of the son's name, no less than the father's name, no less than the spirit's name, for it is one name, it is to that name that the bright burning seraphim do not cease to sing with the rest of the angels of heaven, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And even beyond all of that, beyond the richness of his divine being, the fullness of God dwelling in him and the glory of God emanating from him, beyond the richness of his divine possession, that he is the creator and thus the owner of heaven and earth, beyond even those things is his richness, the richness of his divine relations. You see, anyone in possession of all the riches that we just spoke about would be infinitely wealthy, even if he possessed such riches in isolation devoid of relationship, and devoid of love. But the Son possesses those riches in the glory of perfect communion with and delight in his Father and the Spirit. In Luke 10, Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And though there are oceans of mystery wrapped up in that statement, one certain implication is that there is a unique knowledge and communion that exists between the persons of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity has a unique, all-exclusive, all-comprehensive, all-penetrating knowledge of the others. Our knowledge of God increases little bit by little bit as we strive and strain to wrap our minds around the infinite fullness of God as he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And even when we are, by grace, able to grasp just a little bit more knowledge of God, we are at once confronted with the ineffable delight of knowing one so perfect and at the same time confronted with the blessed despair that we could ever know him fully. the Son, the Son knows the Father in such comprehensive intimacy that compared to that knowledge, no one else knows the Father at all. Listen to what John Murray says. The knowledge of the Son of God is a knowledge for which there are no obscurities, no inscrutable mysteries. It's a knowledge that penetrates the very being of God, that comprehends the totality of the divine glory, and that searches the deepest mysteries of the divine will. What tides of ineffable delight, without beginning or end, without ebb or flow, must eternally ravish the heart and mind of the eternal Son? Another commentator described this relationship as replete with with fathomless and inexpressible blessedness. All oh, who can enter in to the boundless depths of joy in the fellowship of the eternal Father and the eternal Son in the eternal Spirit. Oh, the blessedness of God's dear Son basking in the eternal sunshine and the joy of his Father's blessing. Friends, has there ever been anyone so rich as Christ was rich? And yet... Though he was rich, though being rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. And after meditating, as we have for just a moment, on the Son's eternal riches, these words land on us with almost utter bewilderment. How could it be that someone so rich as Christ could ever experience anything that might be described as poverty. Herein we behold the peculiar glory of the incarnation, the matchless beauty of gospel grace. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. He says, Christ Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So Even though Christ existed eternally, even though he was eternally existing in the very nature and essence and glory of God, even though he was existing in equality with God the Father, ruling creation in majesty and receiving the worship of the saints and angels in heaven... He did not regard the dignity of his station as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He nullified himself. Now, that does not mean that in becoming man, the eternal Son of God ceased to be what he was as God in the richness of his own divine being. No, that would be impossible. He remained the creator and sustainer of the universe. He continued to fully subsist in the divine nature. He remained the possessor of all the divine attributes and all the prerogatives of God. Colossians 2.9 says of his incarnate state that in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He delivers God's word to God's people in Matthew 5, not as the prophets who said, thus saith the Lord, but as the Lord of Revelation himself, who said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. He declares sins forgiven in Luke 5. And when the Pharisees think to themselves, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus says, he reads their thoughts and says, yes, the son of man does have authority to forgive sins. When Thomas bows before him and in John twenty twenty eight comes and worships him as my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't do what the angel of Revelation said and says, get up, worship God alone. He receives the worship that is due to God that is the prerogative of God alone. And he heals the sick and raises the dead and feeds the 5,000 and works the rest of his divine miracles, displaying his divine glory, the glory as of the only one begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Christ did not become poor by subtracting some aspects of his godhood from himself, Scripture does not teach that the Son exchanged His deity for humanity. No, He didn't become poor by ceasing to be what He was, God. He became poor by becoming what He was not, man. He became poor by addition, not by subtraction. By becoming what he wasn't, even while never ceasing to be what he was, while taking on by taking on a divine nature, even while never shedding his by taking on a human nature, excuse me, even while never shedding his divine nature. So what then was his poverty, if not being deprived of his deity in some way? Just this: that though he had every right to continue in unlimited, manifest power and authority, to radiate the very essence and glory of deity, to receive nothing but the most exalted worship from the saints and and angels in heaven, immune from poverty, immune from pain, free from all humiliation. He did not selfishly count those riches to be slavishly held on to, but sacrificed them to become man, and accomplish salvation for sinners. One commentator said, he surrendered all the insignia of divine majesty and assumed all the frailty and vicissitudes of the human condition. And I like that. He surrendered the insignia of divine majesty. John Calvin wrote, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. He concealed the riches of his divine majesty, of the Lord of glory, behind the veil of the poverty of a slave. Though being rich, yet he became poor. He is rich as the uncreated creator, but poor insofar as he assumes a created human nature. The one who always was coming to exist as a human embryo in the womb of his mother and being born of a woman. He is, as Augustine said, man's maker made man. He is rich as the divine son of God, and yet poor as he was born to a poor virgin who had been disgraced by suspicions of immorality. He is rich as the rightful owner of everything in heaven and earth, and yet poor as he's born in a stable and laid in a manger in a feed trough for a bed. One would think that if the God of the universe was going to enter into the creation, he'd come in palaces, the proverbial red carpet rolled out for him, and here he lies, a helpless infant in a manger. He is rich as the one whose glory fills the earth, who is rightfully worshipped by the saints and angels in heaven, and yet he is poor as the one who was made for a little while lower than the angel. He's rich as the sustainer of all things, upholding the galaxies by the word of his power, and yet poor at the same time being sustained by the nutrients of his mother's body. He is rich as the immutable one, one so perfect that he could never change for the better and so righteous that he could never change for the worse, and yet poor, who, as Luke 2.52 tells us, kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He is rich as the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and yet poor as the man who had no place in, to lay his head. The foxes that he created had holes. The birds whose life he sustained by his word had nests, but the son of man who had spoken the world into existence had no place on that earth he created to call his own. He is the bread of life who out of the infinite fullness of his own being satisfies the hunger of every soul who feasts upon him. And yet he experiences hunger. He is the fountain of living waters who invited the thirsty to come to him and drink and never be thirsty again. And yet he experiences the parched mouth of human thirst. He is rich as the omnipotent one, the source of all strength, who calms the winds and the waves with a word. And yet poor as the one who grew weary from a day's journey and needed to sleep. He is the truth, John fourteen six. I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth slandered, And accused of bearing false witness. The king of the angels, accused of being possessed by demons. The embodiment of faithfulness, abandoned and betrayed by his friends. The one who clothes the grass of the field and the lilies of the valley was stripped bare. The one who healed the sick with a touch had his back torn open by the scourges of sinful men. The brow that should have borne the crown of heaven was pierced by thorns. The one who upheld the universe is at the same time collapsed under the weight of his own crossbar and needs the help of a man whom he had made, whose life he was sustaining at that moment to carry his cross with him to Golgotha. In the majesty of heaven, to look upon this one would have been to look upon the epitome of all beauty. But Isaiah, who told us in chapter 6 of the angelic worship that he received in heaven, tells us in chapter 53 which we read together earlier, that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. The king of all glory, the most beautiful one, was despised and forsaken of men, and the one fairer than the fairest of 10,000, Isaiah says, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The worshiped became the despised. The blessed one became the man of sorrows. The master became the slave. Friends, the rich became poor. but his poverty did not reach its depths at the shame and the pain and the torture we must raise our eyes to calvary up to golgotha and behold the one who was rich in that he had life within himself john 5:26 i have life in myself rich as the one who gives life to whomever he wishes john 5:21 And we need to see there the author of life humbly submitting to death. The sinless one, only and ever the worker of righteousness, as if he had served sin, paid the wages of death. Rightly do we sing, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It was not just death. If one so rich as God the Son had to know the poverty of death, we would think that at least it would be an honorable death. But no, as Philippians two eight says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. One commentator said the cross displayed the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. It exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. In crucifixion, metal spikes were driven through the victim's wrists and feet, and he was left to hang naked and exposed, sometimes for days, because the body would be pulled down by gravity The weight of a victim's own body would press against his lungs, and the hyperextension of the lungs and chest muscles made it difficult to breathe. And so victims would gasp for air by pulling themselves up, but as they would do that, the wounds in their wrists and feet would tear, and their backs, usually torn open from flogging, would grate against the jagged wood. And eventually, when He could no longer summon the strength to pull himself up to breathe. The victim of a crucifixion would die from suffocation under the weight of his own body. This was the most sadistically cruel, excruciatingly painful, and loathsomely degrading death that a man could die. And there on Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, the innocent, holy, Righteous Son of God died this death. God on a cross. But it doesn't stop even there. The shame and the pain of the cross was not the lowest depth of poverty to which the Son of God humbly submitted Himself. Deuteronomy 21, 23 taught that anyone hanged on a tree is a of God. And Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3, 13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Worse than the pain and the torture and the shame, the self-impoverishment, of the Son of God climaxes in his bearing of the divine curse as the unmixed fury of the Father breaks over the head of his beloved Son in whom he is well pleased as Christ bears the sins of his people as our substitute and cries out in words that eternity will never exegete for us, in words that exhaust the depths of mystery, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? the author of life, dead. The fountain of all divine blessings become a curse under the wrath of God. The beloved son who basked eternally in the radiant smiles of his father, now forsaken by his father and crushed under the weight of his father's frown. Dear friends, no one was ever richer than the Son of God, and no one was ever poorer than that same Son of God. You say, why? Why did he do this? Why should this what seems to be terrible miscarriage of justice take place? Here we come to our third point. We've meditated upon Christ's riches We've raised our eyes to consider the mystery of Christ's poverty. What was Christ's purpose? Look again at our verse. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Dear Christian, he did this for you, it was your sin that he bore. It was your spiritual poverty that required the surrender of his riches. The price your sin required was nothing less than the death and the curse of the son of God in your place. The wrath he suffered at the father's hand, Christian, that was your wrath. The abandonment that he experienced, that was your abandonment. That cry of dereliction was your cry of dereliction. And yet you may go free into the cloudless peace of divine blessing. You, through his poverty, might become rich. And rich not in the passing treasures of this earth, where moth and rust destroy and and which thieves break in and steal, but rich in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Romans 10, verse 12 says, The Lord is abounding in riches for all those who call on him. Romans eleven thirty three Paul erupts in that famous doxology in praise of the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Colossians 2, 3, he declares that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Ephesians 3, 8 speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 2.7 speaks of the surpassing riches of God's grace. Romans 2.4 speaks of the riches of his kindness. And all throughout Paul's letters are references to the riches of his glory. Friends, all the fancy cars All the million-dollar homes, all the jets and the boats and the toys, all the gold and silver in the world can't hold a candle to the riches of his glory in the inheritance in the saints. These are the riches of the loving election of the Father before the foundation of the world. These are the riches of union with Christ, our Redeemer and friend, the riches of the forgiveness of sins, the payment of our debts, the washing of our stains, the cancellation of our guilt, the riches of the imputation of righteousness, clothed in the garments of salvation, the pure white robe of Christ's own obedience, adoption into the family of God, the permanent indwelling and sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit, a cleansed conscience, Communion with the triune God that grants an indomitable joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Made a partaker of the divine nature, increasing conformity to the very likeness of Christ himself, and one day to be free from all sin and suffering in the presence of Christ on the new earth. All these riches are yours for the taking, but they're all wrapped up in the Savior, They're all stored up in the person of Christ. And dear friend, if you would take possession of these spiritual riches, you must come and take possession of Christ by faith alone this afternoon. If you do not yet know Christ, if you remain yet outside of him, if you remain wallowing in the wretched poverty of your own sinfulness, I entreat you to confess your sins before God where you sit And turn to Christ, who has accomplished all your righteousness. He has descended the infinite distance from heaven to earth, from deity to humanity. The God whom you have offended by your sins, Himself comes to you in your own nature and offers you terms of peace. How could you reject Him? How could you turn Him away? Not even the demons have committed so vile a sin as to refuse a mediator who has assumed their own nature to offer them salvation. Don't you commit a sin worse than demons today? Sinner, turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Disown your own righteousness and put all your trust for acceptance with God squarely upon the shoulders of this sovereign Savior and you, through his poverty, will become rich. For your sake, he has done this, Christian. For your sake. And I want to read a bit of an extended quote to you, written by the Puritan John Flavel. It's called, The Father's Bargain with the Son. And it pictures that intra-Trinitarian council of salvation that took place before the worlds began. And it captures something of the self-imposed poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sake. A dialogue between the Father and the Son. Father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son says, Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that that rather that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Father, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. And the Father says, but my son, if thou undertake for them Thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son says, content, father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And therefore, dear friends, we have Christmas. Therefore, we have the incarnation to celebrate and to bless God for every day of the year. Behold your King, Behold your king in all the beauty of his grace who, as it were, steps between his people and their judge and says, upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. Behold your king in the infinite worthiness of his person who, because of his infinite righteousness, can say, charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. Behold your king in the glory of his magnanimity of his large-hearted humility who says, though it impoverish all my riches, though it empty me of my most precious treasure, even of the sweetness of my communion with you, dear Father, such is my love to sinners that I am content to undertake it. Friends, as you meditate on the incarnation, as you reflect on and contemplate this gospel of self-imposed poverty, revealed in the incarnation, life, atonement, and resurrection of Christ. Worship God the Son for his grace. Which one of you, if you were found to be in such a state of intimate communion with God, as said to be in the bosom of the Father, which of you could be persuaded to leave the Father's bosom for all the good and the glory in the world? You wouldn't do it. Not one of you would do it. And yet the eternal son who actually was in the bosom of the father who enjoyed the sweetest and dearest communion with the father that could be conceived freely left him and laid down those riches so that you through his poverty might be rescued from your poverty and would enjoy those very riches that he had left. Brothers, who has ever loved like Christ has loved us? Worship him for his grace. And worship the Father. Worship God the Father for his love to sinners in giving such a one as Christ over to suffer the fury of his wrath in the place of us. Flavel says again, he says, our dearest children, are but as strangers to us in comparison of the unspeakable dearness that was between the Father and Christ. It melts our bowels, it breaks our heart to behold our children striving in the pangs of death. But the Lord beheld his son struggling under agonies that never any felt before him, that he should ever be content to part with a son, and such an only one is such a manifestation of love as will be admired to all eternity." And I say, let's start now. May the love of the Father be our daily object of admiration, that he would give such a one as Christ for us. And worship the Father not only for his love, but for his wisdom. As Steve said before, the one whose mind is so vast, the Father whose whose wisdom is so unsearchable that he devised this plan of salvation You see, only God himself could ever atone for sin. And yet only man's sacrifice would be accepted on behalf of man. No one ought to pay except man, and no one can pay except God. And if God had convened the entire company of angels to employ all their collective wisdom and devise a plan to save sinners in such a predicament, they would have been at an eternal stalemate. And yet in his marvelous wisdom, God conceives of the unthinkable, that to to reconcile man to God, God would become man. The second person of the Trinity would take upon himself a human nature without altering the divine nature. The divine nature and the human nature would be bound together in this single person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, as the, the Chalcedonian Creed puts it, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. See, these truths that we struggle and strain so mightily to understand don't even make God break an intellectual sweat. They are elementary to him. And that ought to bow us in humble wonder and move us to praise and worship of the Father for his wisdom. I'll close with the words of the Puritan pastor and professor Stephen Charnock in his magisterial treatise on the existence and attributes of God. He wrote the following of the incarnation. What a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, should be more intimately united than anything in the world that the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. And we could add that a God so rich should be made a man so poor. Charnock concludes, the incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. And may it never cease to astonish each one of us. May it be a cause of perpetual worship of God the Son incarnate through the Holy Spirit into the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are worthy of praise to devise this plan of salvation and then to love sinners so exquisitely as to part with your own dear son, the apple of your eye, the one only deserving of your smile and blessing, that you would give him over to our lot, to the poverty of what we deserved. Lord, it should bow every one of our hearts in humble submission, in humble worship. I pray that you grant repentance where necessary. I pray that you you inflame hearts to gratefulness and to dutiful service because a gospel like that motivates us. It's coal in the furnace. It strengthens our hands. It makes us want to serve. It makes us want to lay down whatever riches and comforts we might have to serve those whom you've given us to serve, to be generous with our time, with our labors, with our finances, with our lives, so that you may get what you are worthy of in us. Lord Jesus, you are the God-man, worthy of all praise. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy are you to take the scroll, and break its seals, for you were slain. You, the, the eternal God, the author of life, were slain. You stepped in between us and our judge, and you were able to discharge our debt. Christ, get what you are worthy of in your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.